Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. We cover a lot of scientific news every day at Technology Networks and on this podcast we share with you the highlights of the last week in research. I'm Rory, a senior science writer at Technology Networks and joining me today are my colleagues Molly Campbell and Lucy Lawrence. How are you both? Hey, I am well, thank you. I'm very good, thanks. Good stuff. On today's podcast, we were really sampling, I'd say, from across the scientific spectrum. I'm going to talk about an innovative memory boosting technique created by the ancient Greeks and which could now help you remember your shopping list. And Lucy will be exploring some vision restoring contact lenses. But I think, Molly, you were going to kick us off with a story about uh, invasive squirrels. That I am. <laughs> um, well, where does one begin? So, um, yeah, I came across this uh, research study that came out um, in scientific reports this week and just want to put a disclaimer out there. First of all, I have nothing against squirrels. Um, this is despite having a traumatic story relating to squirrels, which I'd like to share with you all quite briefly. Um, so when I was younger, I went on holiday to Spain and my mom made me get, you know, when kids go away and they get the braids in the hair that are really yes. tall. Yeah, really scrape the mm-hmm. scalp back, really, really good for the hair follicles. Um, so I suffered like extreme sunburn all over my scalp. And then um, upon returning home, we had a hanging basket that just sat above the front door. Oh, God. And as I opened the front door, a grey squirrel jumped from the hanging basket and like landed on my head onto the burnt scalp with the tight plaits on it and I just wailed and went crazy so um yeah despite that experience with squirrels <laughs> wow <laughs> I have nothing against them um but yeah just just thought I'd give you a bit of context as to why I'm glad t- for the, the full disclosure <laughs> there yeah, yeah so, you know, so what about you to say I like, I like to give um, context to what I'm talking about. So um, this new study, it is by a group of researchers who are basically, it's not a study that's been conducted in squirrels, just to put that out there as well, but it's used modelling basically to look at the potential role of using gene drives to control the population of the invasive grey squirrel, which I'm sure you guys might be familiar with, um, our listeners might be too. The invasive grey squirrel is called invasive because it isn't naturally, the UK is not its natural habitat, it was brought to the UK. And as a result, it has dramatically reduced the population of uh, red squirrels um, because it competes for food and also the grey squirrel carries certain diseases that aren't pathogenic to the grey squirrel, but are to the red squirrel. That's not what you want on your sunburnt scalp. Oh, no. (laughs) No more pathogens, please. Um, So, yeah, the premise of this today is looking at gene drives. Um, Don't know how familiar you guys are with gene drives? A little. Yeah, yeah. Start me from the beginning on those. Yeah, cool. So gene drives, basically, um, they're not a novel concept, um, but they have really been facilitated probably in the past like 10 years or so, thanks to the advent of CRISPR. So gene drives kind of rely on the ability to genetically edit and genetically engineer certain genetic constructs that basically can be inserted into a population and they can have an impact on that population that provides us humans the ability to somewhat control that population. 
you might have heard about them in mosquitoes previously. There have been a lot of research studies adopting gene drives in mosquitoes whereby a genetic construct is inserted into a genetically engineered mosquito and hypothetically should that mosquito be released into the wild it's genetically altered such that its children would be infertile if that makes sense mm -hmm. so thereby causing a suppression on the population so that's kind of where the research area has focused on for many years but this study was basically using computer modeling to look at the impact that using a specific type of gene drive, which the researchers called collectively as HDCLVR. It's a collection of three different gene drive technologies to suppress the invasive grey squirrel. And essentially, the modelling work suggests that it would be a suitable approach for controlling the grey squirrel population. Um, as I say, it's not actually a study that's been conducted in animals, it's purely based on modelling, so there are quite a few things to consider there. But I thought it was interesting to bring to the table because it really is the epitome of looking at how we humans have these incredibly complex but also really easy to use genetic tools at our disposal. And it's that kind of moral dilemma of, OK, we can do this. Does it mean that we should do this? Mm -hmm. You know? the ethical uh, societal impacts of uh, impacting mother nature I suppose but in this context it's for the, the greater good I suppose you could consider it because grey squirrels impact biodiversity and um, the biodiversity crisis is obviously extremely extremely important um, and is is it acceptable for us to use these modern scientific tools to try and solve such crises for the greater good. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to bring that forward today to tell you guys. Um, we can of course include the story um, in the podcast description. And we also have a really nice Teach Me 10 all about gene drives that we can share with everybody. But yeah, what do you guys think? I feel that there's a lot of points to this. Um, I think that Grace Girls in particular, when you shared this story, it triggered something off my memory from an article that I'd read a couple of years ago. And it was an interesting piece about invasive species worldwide. Um, now, the particular ones they were talking about there were Pablo Escobar's escaped cocaine hippos, um, which is an entirely different story. This is uh, hippos, drug lord Escobar brought for his private zoo in Colombia. Now he's dead and the hippos are are roaming free around Colombia and procreating and causing havoc. Um, now, obviously, a hippo is quite, uh, you know, a, a dangerous animal. And, and although the local population have made hay from uh, tourism with people coming to see these hippos, um, they've also caused a lot of damage to the to the environment and trampling um, the, the local grasslands and such like. So this was like the, the framing for the story. But they did mention grey squirrels and there was an interesting um, aspect, uh, interesting viewpoint taken on it by in this article, which we can share in the in the podcast as well, um, by Dan Etherley, who's author of a book called Invasive Aliens, which is a history of uh, invasive species in the British Isles, and um, he pointed out there that the the most notorious um, invasive species, while it is the the grey squirrel, it should in fact be the rabbit. Now I always assumed that the rabbit was just always here, but in fact they were introduced from Spain. Um, by aristocrats um, under King Henry II. Now, um, when they were brought over, they were 
and you know pretty uh, pretty rubbish by all accounts they were so weak they couldn't <laughs> even dig their own burrows but obviously they they sorted their uh, their homes out and now have dominated our our landscape as well as they did when they were introduced to New Zealand and Australia and the descriptor used for both rabbits and grey squirrels was essentially you know comparing um, their spread in um, the British Isles but they, they were saying are, are these animals responsible or is it more just that, that humans have, have done this to our own habitat I mean the grey squirrels didn't ask to be brought here um, to the British Isles and you know it's, it's not some nefarious plan by them to have pathogenic um, hosts be a pathogenic host that can uh, you know wipe out um, red squirrels uh, and they also pointed out in the article that the red squirrel population was majorly in decline due to deforestation way before grey squirrels even appeared so um, I think that's a, an interesting aspect to it too like do we want to paint red squirrels as invaders or do we just see them purely as as invaders because we we like red squirrels you know I honestly think I've never seen one <laughs> in in Scotland where I'm based where they're meant to be pretty populous but um you know they're like a, a, a sort of nativist symbol right of of the British Isles um so I wonder how much of it is more sentiment than fact mm. and I also think it, this is pretty interesting as well because it's more broadly like a potential new conservation tool to protect already endangered species so I'm I think that was pretty fascinating really yeah I it's it's so interesting I just keep thinking like are we correcting the mistakes of our ancestors like you said Rory with the tools that we have that they didn't or are we is this a personal vendetta almost against a species I don't know it's really hard to say mm. The article also mentioned another tool that we devised to tackle grey squirrels. This one's a bit less scientific, but it was backed apparently by Prince Charles. This one involved um, tempting grey squirrels with little sticks in the ground, which are topped with uh, contraceptive laced Nutella. Oh, <laughs> so no. The grey squirrels were going to eat. I don't think that, that worked particularly well. But Who thought that? <laughs> are we talking about like Nutella sticks? basically that put squirrels on the pill exactly yeah god wow i love science I, I don't know i think we're just getting a bit too smart for ourselves with all these scientific things we just need lots of squirrel condoms to be spread around the british isles so the only <laughs> way never ever ever thought you'd say squirrel condoms <laughs> yeah that's an odd one <laughs> <laughs> right. Before before we go entirely off topic, um, maybe Lucy, you'd like to tell us about your uh, very smart sounding contact lenses. Yeah, of course. So <laughs> this week I was taking a look on our website and was like literally fascinated by the article I saw from EPFL, which is a research institute um, and university in Switzerland. And essentially the article is about retinal implants for people who've become blind and giving them artificial vision, which literally allows people who are blind to have their sight back. And um, I know last time I joined the podcast, I said the words, this is science fiction. It seems like science fiction, but it's actually real life. And again, I feel the exact same because being able to make blind people see again sounds like stuff of miracles. And it's always been this huge challenge for scientists, if not one mm -hmm. of the biggest challenges to restore someone's vision. So uh, 
I did a bit of uh, research and I'd seen that 32 million people around the world are blind and between two and four million of them owe their condition to the loss of these light sensitive cells in their retinas. Um, so if you have a blindness that relates to this, the best treatment option for you up until now was a retinal implant, which has electrodes that effectively stimulate the cells in your eyes. But the implants aren't that great and you don't really get much eyesight back with them because if you have like one of these implants, you're still considered legally blind. So I looked into this a bit more and in order to lead what's considered a quote unquote normal life, the implantee has to have a visual field of at least 40 degrees. And these implants only give you about 20 degrees. So it's not really ideal. But anyway, uh, that was the background and that was the problem. But the team of researchers in Switzerland made this very problem their problem too, and have come up with this incredible way to restore vision. And it gives a person up to, I think it was about 46 degrees of vision, which as I said, is much better than the 20 something degrees you'd be getting with the previous version. So already I was hooked. I was straight in there. I was thinking, yes, this sounds brilliant. And uh, essentially, you'll still have to wear a retinal implant, but you'll also have to wear these kind of pair of smart glasses and they take in what you should be able to see. And then they send that data to this tiny computer that's um, in the end piece of the glasses. And this tiny computer turns that data into light signals that are sent to the electrodes in your retinal implant inside of your eye. So basically the electrons then stimulate the retina. So what you can now see is a pretty simple black and white version of the view. Um, but still you can see again. So, and I guess by simple, it really does mean simple because it's made up of dots of light that you'll be able to see when the eye cells are stimulated. Um, but if you're blind, you'll be able to kind of learn how to figure out these dots of light and make shapes and objects out of them. So I think the best way I saw it described was, it, was it's like when you look at the stars in the sky at night and you learn to see the specific constellations. So people who are blind and wearing these glasses with the implant would see something similar, which to me is mind blowing because imagine that you can see again. But yeah, it, like that's crazy, right? <laughs> but there is a catch and that is that it's not really been tested in humans yet so it's not gone to human trials and the team in Switzerland um, first have to be 100% certain of their results because also they aren't just able to pop in an eye implant into your eye and they have to have the right medical approval which takes a really long time um, but they have kind of thought of a way around this and they figured out a way to test it virtually. So they've literally thought of everything. The engineers have created this virtual reality program that you can use to see what people who are blind would see with the implants in their glasses, which again right. is pretty cool. Um, and one thing I actually forgot to mention is that the implants they're using are bigger than the conventional implants, which is significant because it's got a larger surface area, which means the image quality the person who is blind can see is better. Mm. Um, and because the implants are bigger, it means they reach more cells that will get stimulated. So it means your vision will be clearer, which makes sense. And until now, that's been pretty hard to achieve. And <laughs> maybe you should put a little graphic warning here. <laughs> but the cut in your eye has to be as small as possible, obviously, to stop any damage to the tissue which was a problem because you're wanting to put in a bigger implant so you can see clearer. But the team have literally thought of everything and they've used this really flexible material and it looks a bit like a contact lens in all honesty, um, but it can be folded up. So during the surgery, it's just like 
folded all the way up and popped into your eye. So you can have this much larger implant without having to make the cut in your eye any bigger. And so anyway, it's in the first round of testing and so far it's been super successful. It's like non-toxic and it looks really promising. And I think it will definitely be interesting to see how well people who are blind, when they can eventually try all this, adapt to this new way of seeing, which isn't actually like our natural vision. So I, I just thought it was fascinating. Absolutely. It's it's really incredible technology. I think you you have picked two stories in a row that are, yeah, as you say, science fiction. And mm -hmm. I think that analogy to, to constellations is really beautiful, you know, mm. the, um taking meaning from something which to I'm sure a lot of volunteers in the study who might have started out using it initially, it wouldn't you know, have meant much to them, but you can learn so much from just discrete points of data in your, mm -hmm. your vision, you know, like with I guess in the same way we learn to read, you know, symbols initially don't mean anything mm -hmm. to us, but over time we can learn to extract meaning and, and information value from them in the same way. It's really interesting. Yeah, I thought the night sky analogy was just so lovely because everyone's obviously seen the sky at night time and you can kind of pick out those specific constellations. So you can kind of envision in your mind's eye of what that might look like for them, which I thought was really, really nice. I think this sounds really interesting. I will be intrigued to see if it materialises, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I sound a bit sceptical. I do think it sounds incredible. Um, but I I don't know. I, I always feel a little bit towards kind of vision research. And there have been so many amazing sort of developments in the past few years but also it does kind of feel like an area of medicine that somewhat not lags behind but there, there really doesn't seem to be that many treatment options available for people so I mean obviously if this does substantiate into an, an effective treatment and the results are replicated in human trials it will be incredible mm -hmm. um but yeah it, it's an interesting area because I suppose there's also there's a lot of uh, research in kind of gene therapy and things like that for retinal disorders and whatnot too so I wonder I don't know will we see a combination of these kind of things going forward like it's just mm. it's, it's really interesting yeah I think that's a good point to be fair and I think a lot of these kind of uh, studies are also pretty underfunded as well um so I I yeah I get what you're saying and fingers crossed it does kind of go somewhere because I think again there is a definite need for something mm -hmm. to emerge sometime soon. I can't help but wonder if it's partly due to the the really wide range of causes because we mm. you know we think of sight loss as being you know such a, a of an impairment that we would want to, to fix as quickly as possible but clearly there's lots of different reasons in visual circuits why people can lose their sight you know it's not just one particular cell type as you, you said, Lucy, it could down, mm -hmm. be down to defective um, receptors or it could be something, an, an issue in the, the structure of the eye itself, or it could be something genetic. There's all these different causes, which I imagine means that any one of these treatments, as you've said, only actually can benefit a, a small proportion of the, the wider um, blind population. So mm -hmm. um, it's probably just a, an area that we need to redouble our efforts and funding towards to make sure that people who are maybe a, a smaller group of patients can still benefit from these technologies that are undeniably, they sound amazing. I'd be really excited to see if they can make it work in practice.
because it yeah. literally would be life-changing treatment so absolutely that's cool thanks Lucy mm-hmm. I thought so now my study I, I want to talk about isn't quite as life-changing I mean perhaps if you really always forget where you leave your car keys and you absolutely just need to have a revolutionary memory altering technique to help you do so um that could be life-changing I guess but it's not not quite the same level of, of importance but it's nonetheless <laughs> I think uh, I need it <laughs> I feel like I do too um <laughs> but uh my paper I want to be discussing is by Wagner et al and it was published in Science Advances last week so this is a research team from across Europe who investigated a memory technique known as the method of loci. Now, this is a technique that was actually originally devised by the ancient Greeks, um, but it was most recently and well, most famously, if you watch primetime BBC programmes used in the show Sherlock featuring Benedict Cumberbatch, who um, deployed his, I don't think it was used in the, the original books, I think this was a, a TV only creation, but uh, he deployed this technique in order to solve all the cases that were put to him. But it's not actually just the resolve of uh, TV detectives. It's also used um, at the highest uh, performance levels of memory by um, self-described memory champions who compete in the, the World Memory Championships. Now, um, these championships uh, generally consist of uh, a group of competitors trying to remember the most words from a list that's presented to them as possible. So it's a, a fairly specific kind of um, performance, but you know the, these people are incredible. Like uh, um, the study initially wanted to, to look at whether the technique, which generally is used by pretty much anyone who's performing in these memory championships, is something that could boost memory in the long term. It only really been studied in the, the short term. In these championships, the memory champions are given a list of you know, 70, 80 words, and uh, 20 minutes later, they're told to regurgitate as many of them as possible. Uh, so the, the long-term benefits of this technique hadn't really been explored up till now, but Wagner et al. initially took a group of um, memory champions and a group of people who were sort of self-selected IQ buffs, so these were members of the High IQ Society Mensa, and had them compete against each other in a memory test, and they showed that um, even whilst they, the control group were high IQ individuals, they could remember about 40 words from the given list, which is dwarfed by the, the 72 words on average recalled by the memory champions. So initially showed that people using this method of low side technique or adept it are, are really incredible at, at remembering things. Before we go any further, I'll talk a bit about what the method of low side is. If you have seen um, Sherlock, you'll recall a very CGI heavy um, sequence in which the detective walks into his mind palace. Now, method uh, loci is also called the, the mind palace for the sort of memory walking technique. And the idea is that you imagine a familiar location. It could be a palace if you want, if you've got that kind of uh, ambition, or it could just be your house, or your flat. And um, within that space, you place essentially objects that you want to remember um, along a path which you then walk. So I'm currently sitting in my the front room at my flat and I could imagine walking into my hallway and finding the the milk I want to pick up in my grocery shop later and then going to the kitchen and find some eggs and using this technique you can build up essentially a pathway which you follow uh, which can help you remember this this really long list of um, of whatever you, you'd like it to be be it faces names grocery ingredients now 
the researchers, after they, they'd shown the, the ability of these memory champions, then took 50 volunteers who had no knowledge of the method of loci, and they divided them into three groups. One was trained in the art of loci, another was given working memory training, which is a, a different type of memory that they wouldn't have expected to give the same benefits, and a third group were given no training at all. Now, they assessed their memory ability and also scanned their brains using an MRI, and they showed that um, after training, the memory, the loci ability trained uh, individuals were not only better after 20 minutes of being presented a list, but also after 24 hours, they were able to um, recall more than nearly twice the words um, as the untrained group were able to. Uh, they further more then looked at the groups um, four months down the line, they had them come back into the lab and they showed that again, the method of loci trained individuals were able to outperform the other groups recalling 20 more words than they could pre-training uh, as opposed to the other groups who, whose memories largely went back to how they were um, pre-training. So clearly it's a, an enduring technique that has obvious value in practice, but they wanted to show um, whether or not there's any changes in the brain that can be tied to this improved memory ability. So they looked at MRI data and they initially expected that um, certain brain areas related to spatial processing and memory processing, such as the hippocampus, for example, uh, would show increased activity uh, when people were using the method of loci to recall items from the list they were given. Interestingly, they in fact showed that virtually every area they looked at reduced its performance rather than increasing it. They also then showed that there was an increased uh, coordination between brain areas related to memory, related to visual processing. So the, the kind of story they, they brought out of this was that um, the neural efficiency of these individuals has increased. Now, neural efficiency is a concept uh, which we can discuss more, but essentially the, the general idea is that if you're really skilled or really intelligent, you can uh, use less brain processing power to uh, perform cognitive tasks as opposed to someone who hasn't got the same level of skill. They're essentially suggesting the method of loci helps improve your brain's efficiency and also that it helps you coordinate brain areas to sort of fire together. Um, so I spoke to the uh, the lead researcher, Isabella Wagner, and she said that it's a technique that can't just benefit um, memory champions, in fact, can probably benefit everyone, even if it is just for something as simple as a grocery list. And her advice was to make sure that your location you choose is familiar as possible. So it could be the, the house you're in and make sure that along your route you place some really weird associations to kind of tie in areas of your brain related to novelty. So rather than just placing a carton of eggs in her kitchen, for example, she placed a, a flock of chickens that would then remind her to, to think of eggs. So um, I think it's a, a really innovative memory technique and uh, clearly there's some interesting brain data backing it up. I wish I'd known about this like during that time while we were all having Zoom calls because there was a Zoom lockdown game that I was playing with everyone online <laughs> and it was like remember all of the items and then the items get taken away and I feel like I could have benefited from this I could have won a few of those. Yeah I think Molly didn't you say that you felt you'd been using this technique all your life without knowing what it was called when I mentioned it to you? Yeah. <laughs> have you? <laughs> So I, this is one of those things. Do you remember last year when it came out about like the certain people have thoughts where they're literally words written down in their head. Some people have thoughts where it's like images 
coming together, mm -hmm. visualizing, etc. This feels to me like one of those things. I've never thought about the way that I learn and the way that I retain memories. But when I read, so obviously I, I had a look at this article already and I was thinking, this sounds awfully familiar. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's the exact same premise, but so I did it a lot in uh, revision at school. So I'm not very good at remembering stuff unless I'm challenged to remember it. Um, so whenever I've done exams or anything like that, university, I've always done kind of Q and A's or I'd get like an A3 sheet of paper and basically draw kind of like a house, like a building. And I'd allocate certain, so here's an example. I had to remember um, for, I was doing a paper on um, drug development in Alzheimer's. So I had to remember all the failing clinical trials and the companies that had basically tried to develop them. So I put each company in a different room of that house. That's such and a good then, idea. Yeah, when it came to like writing the essay, I remember it was like you had two hours to write an essay and I had to remember all these things. And I worked my way through the house as I worked through the structure of my article. Is that, does anyone else do that? <laughs> I've not done that, but I feel like I should have. <laughs> That's I think so it's, cool. I think it's just you, Sherlock, the memory champions and Plato, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from our listeners whether anyone else uses the technique. It sounds like it's much more common than um, the authors maybe realized. Um, yeah. The only, the only other observation I have about the paper, uh, I don't want to sound too cynical here, but I feel with brain imaging studies, there's something that doesn't sit right with me in terms of the, the scientific reasoning here, because the authors said in their paper that they expected the activation to increase. In fact, they saw the absolute opposite, but nonetheless, because there's this neural efficiency hypothesis, it seems to me that there should be some test to say it to prove it should be one way or the other rather than it just being the case that you could see activation increase you could see it reduce and it still all means the same thing do you know what i mean it it feels like with a lot of these studies the the amount you can actually derive from brain imaging data is limited and i appreciate that mri is a you know it's not a direct measurement of what's happening in your brain it's a or, or your thought processing rather it's a you know it's a, a measurement of uh, a correlate of these so it's it's never a perfect replicate but I can't help but wonder if we we need something that's more provable rather than something that you know you could just produce any old result you want regardless of whether <laughs> it's up or down or um, you know whatever you find. Yeah it goes back to a core issue that doesn't it in neuroscience really. There's a great book have you read Robert, uh, Robert Newman uh, Neuropolis? I've not no. Well, there you go. Recommendation for you and for the listeners. Uh, I believe off the top of my head, it's called Neuropolis, um, a guide to brain science. Talks about some of the core issues in neuroscience research, logistics, methods, etc. Um, but yeah, that goes back to a core one of actually, are we measuring activity, quote unquote, correctly in the most kind of beneficial way possible based on the tools that we have available? So yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Great. Well, I think we've given our listeners quite a lot of uh, homework, I guess. They can go and read Neuropolis. They can check above their front doors for grey squirrels hiding out in <laughs> buckets. But uh, again, thank you, Lucy, and thank you, Molly, for joining me. Uh, I think it's been a really great discussion. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. 
And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Now we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another discussion podcast. But until then, please like, share and subscribe to Opinionated Science. And please let us know what you think. Don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now. <laughs>